Yo, yo, welcome to Crypto 101, the average consumer's guide to cryptocurrency. This is Matthew Aaron, and today we are going back to F Denver, and we're going to talk to two companies. The first company we heard last week with Rune Christensen, and he told us about MakerDAO 101, DAI 101, and a little bit about himself. But we're going to revisit MakerDAO with Mariano Conti who is their head of oracles. And we talk about many different aspects that weren't talked about in the last episode. And we also talk about Argentina and how he in South America perceives cryptocurrency and digital assets. Then we talk to Nori and we have Nori 101, which they're gonna tell us about helping climate change by using blockchain. But before we get into that conversation, please go to crypto101podcast.com. There you can find our social medias, our Twitter, our Facebook, our Instagram. Follow us to keep up to date with what is going on with cryptocurrency and crypto 101. Wherever you're listening to this episode, please make sure you're following us. Subscribe, leave us a rating and a comment. Patrons, thank you for being patrons. And if you want to become a patron, just go to patreon.com, search Crypto 101, and please support us, donate, and you will get these episodes earlier than everyone else so you can get your 101s on cryptocurrencies and what's happening in the space. I want to say thank you very much to Jay LaBella for editing this episode. And this episode is sponsored by Energy. Now, without further ado, MakerDAO and Nori 101 from F Denver. We'll see you after the show. Mariano Conti, head of oracles for MakerDAO. Welcome to Crypto 101, sir. Hi, nice to be here. Dude, we are in Denver. Yeah. We are people from all over the world building on the blockchain or representing the blockchain space in one way or the other. And we all come to Denver, 3,000 of us, to build, hack, and chat with each other. So it's really cool to meet you, bro. Thank you, thank you. I think my favorite Hackathon is actually this one. It's so many people, so many projects, and I can't wait to see. This is only Friday. We have two days of event left, and I can't wait to see what they build. So MakerDAO is becoming very big and synonymous with utilizing cryptocurrency and blockchain adoption. I want to go into what you guys have been working on. I think that if I'm not wrong, we have a Buffy die that is being used right now with the food trucks outside. I have 16 Buffy die on my wallet, I yes. think. And I can use that to buy some, I don't know, I think it's mozzarella sticks or some quesadillas or some fish tacos out there. I want to go in that in a minute, but before we go into everything that MakerDAO is doing, tell me a little bit about yourself, sir. So my name is Mariano. I come from Buenos <coughs> Aires, uh, Argentina. I lived in Mexico City for a few years. And I've worked for Maker for the past two and a half years. I initially started as a developer and then got more and more involved with the project and ended up being, like you said, the head of oracles. I uh, implemented the whole strategy, the whole smart contracts, the whole software and, and business uh, out of it. And we've been running my oracles for, well, I will say our oracles for almost two years. And now a whole bunch of projects use them as well. So I asked this on another podcast, just this actually a couple minutes ago. If people, listeners, if you're listening, uh, you might hear this again. I was interviewing somebody and we asked the same question. What is an Oracle? Can you give us an Oracle 101? Uh, a blockchain is a self-contained system. It knows nothing about the outside. So an Oracle is a way to get data from the outside world into a blockchain. Mm -hmm. That's it. And what does that mean for MakerDAO? For MakerDAO, we actually need two different uh, price feeds. We need the price of Ether in dollars, and we need the price of MKR token in dollars. Okay. And those are our two main oracles. Excellent. So what is MakerDAO doing right now with the blockchain? And, I, and can we go into a little bit about not only what you have done, what you're doing now, especially with ETH or ETH Denver, however you want to pronounce it? Yeah. So Maker, we build the DAI stablecoin. And this is the flagship of Maker. It's a token, it's a cryptocurrency that's one one to the dollar. So one die is one USD and there's no volatility involved, but it has uh, all the advantages of a cryptocurrency. You can send it anywhere for minimal fees. It's unblockable, unstoppable, and um, it can integrate with almost any project in the Ethereum blockchain. So when you say it's, it's pegged one to one <coughs> with the dollar, is it really pegged 101 with the dollar? Or is it ever 101 or? It is what we call a soft peg. Okay. So there can be market conditions that uh, make it go a little bit uh, higher or lower in price. And we have systems available that will control the supply and demand. There's mechanisms that the market can do to move the price either up or down, depending on how it's going. So if DAI is selling for over $1, 
we have mechanisms in place that can increase supply so the price goes a little bit down and if the price is going under a dollar uh, we can increase fees so uh, there's more demand for it and it goes back up uh, but it, it is soft pegged. What is the lowest the die has ever been and the highest the die has ever been? And I'm asking that because a lot of people have had criticism for the USDT mm-hmm. because of that it's not exactly pegged to the dollar. That's, yeah. you know, some days it's 97 cents, 96 cents, mm-hmm. 103. Like, you never really know. But if the point of a stable coin is to be stable and it's mm-hmm. flopping around, why the hell have a stable coin? It is stable in the in the short, medium, and long term. Um, if you look at the price on well, a that's single- all terms. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if, you look, if you look at the price on a single day, it can vary a little bit. But actually, the comparison with the USDT would not be uh, that. It would be the difference is that USDT says that they have an amount of money locked in a bank backing the coin. Meanwhile, DAI has uh, Ether locked up in a smart contract that you can actually audit and see that the backing value is there. But going back to the price, the lowest. It's been, so for example, for the last month, it was hovering below $1. Mm-hmm. So there was a few governance calls and the decision was made to increase the stability fee. So before it was 0.5% per year. So that's what uh, you paid for a loan in DAI uh, in a whole year and we increased it to 1%. The idea is to actually have that uh, move the price uh, back up a little bit uh, closer to $1. It's a little bit more expensive to borrow DAI. And so people who already have debt in DAI, they will want to buy DAI in the market to pay back their debt. And thus, since you increase demand for DAI, the price will go up. I guess the easiest use case for DAI at this moment is just to flop your uh, either your ETH holdings or Bitcoin holdings into a stable coin so they don't you know, appreciate or depreciate, especially if you're running your business using Ethereum or what have you. Uh, you know, the price could be you know, 120 or 500 or whatever time frame you're in to lock it in a certain price. Is that how you see that most people are using it or is there another, other use cases? That is just one out of multiple use cases. The simplest one is, like you said, just to hold uh, DAI. And then you have a cryptocurrency that's stable. So if somebody's getting paid in Ether or in Bitcoin or in any other token, they can instead choose to be paid in DAI and they don't want to speculate with their salary, for example. And if they do, they want to grab a piece of that and buy another token, they can totally do that. But they know that, for example, they have 2K for uh, rent expenses, whatever. Um, Another very good use case is actually uh, leveraging. Mm -hmm. People who have a lot of Ether, they lock it in the smart contract and they borrow DAI and they use that DAI to buy more Ether. Mm. And you can go up to, uh, I think it's uh, 3x leverage. And it is pretty risky because if the price goes down, then you can be liquidated like uh, a margin call. Mm -hmm. And then a lot of people just do not want to spend their ETH. Right now, when we're talking about this, uh, the price is around 120, but it's been at 1400. So say I have Ether. I do not want to spend it now because I believe that it's going to go up. Right. So I can put some of the uh, ETH into a CDP and borrow DAI against it. and use DAI as my medium uh, of exchange mm-hmm. and slowly pay back that loan using my paycheck because I believe that the price is going to go up. This is, of course, uh, betting on the price of ETH, right? But right. That's one of the main use cases that we see. You guys have created a payment system for this event, Buffy Die. Is that correct? Yes. Can you tell us not only a little bit about it, and I want want you to go into this, and I and I want to be a little bit bullish here, because I think a lot of people don't know that a lot of things are happening on the blockchain already, and this is one thing that's happening, and they and a lot of people down outside, even here right now, don't know what's happening right now on the blockchain. Can we go into that? Yes. Um, First off, it's a collaboration uh, between Maker and uh, Austin Griffith, who built the, the Burner Wallet, which I'll get into it, and POA Networks, uh, who built the XDAI chain. So essentially, this is how it works. There's a side chain to Ethereum called XDAI, okay. and it's another chain that's proof of authority instead of proof of work. And there's like five second block time, so confirmations are extremely fast. And the idea is that you get your DAI on the main chain and you move it through a bridge to this other X die chain. And within this, you have fees that are negligible and confirmations in the seconds. So people can really use this token that we call Buffy die 
to transact almost instantaneously. Mm -hmm. And we partnered with a lot of the food trucks around here. So you just scan a QR code and in five seconds you paid for your hot dog, your meal, whatever. Mm -hmm. And this is happening right now. And, and I'm trying to get statistics on it, but we're already in the tens of thousands of dollars uh, transacted right just on. today. And we've just started. We see that there's a use case for blockchain transactions, currency right now. We're using it right now. I was on a podcast the other day and, and Richard Hart, I don't know if you know who Richard Hart is, but Richard Hart said, Bitcoin as a currency network is dead. It has failed. Yeah. He says this because of how long it's taking to be adopted. He said, look, if you look at Uber, Lyft, Facebook, Twitter, it took five years to get these guys going, to get pe people really excited about it. Why? Because it's a really good product. Mm -hmm. With really good products, you're gonna have really fast adoption because people need it, people see the use case for it. Do you believe and how bullish are you on, say, stable coins to be the maybe cryptocurrency, the digital asset or the digital currency for the future? And also, do you agree with what uh, maybe Richard Hart says about Bitcoin is a failed currency network? Um, personally, uh, I wouldn't go that far. That's a little extreme, maybe. Yeah, yeah, but I do feel that a lot of people do not want to spend their Bitcoin. Uh, they don't want to have another uh, Bitcoin pizza event where <laughs> you buy something and then next year uh, you could have bought a house uh, for what you bought. Well, I think th that guy could have bought what, like a, a city, I think by now, right? <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, like a year and a half ago, th those two pizzas were worth um, tens of millions of dollars. Yep. And uh, with a stablecoin, you know exactly um, how much you're spending. And if you use uh, the system proper to actually borrow, uh, and create this die, then then you're essentially not spending your valuable token, uh, which is Ether in this case, but could be Bitcoin in the future. Mm -hmm. I do think that stablecoins are the future. Or otherwise, I wouldn't be working for Maker. I think this is like the project to be around because we're doing something that is going to impact the whole industry. Mm -hmm. And no, I don't think Bitcoin uh, is a failed project, but there does need to be something Not a failed similar. project, but a pr failed currency or payment network. Well, because Richard Hart thinks it's yeah. a great store value, but not a payment network. Well, I would agree then in that case. Yeah, yeah, it's not a good way to spend, to spend money. It, it's a good store value, mm -hmm. I would say. Yeah, I would agree with that. So with all these people coming over here, I'm gonna lighten it up a little bit. With all these people coming over here to Denver and, and being here in Denver, uh, what do you find value in it? Why does people fly from uh, Argentina all the way over to Denver, Colorado to hang out with some nerds, hacking at an event in a warehouse? Well, uh, the serendipity of it all is amazing. By the way, nerds is a positive word, I know, right? I know. Not, not, a, not a negative. No, yeah, yeah, that, <laughs> and I, I include myself. So for example, there's a, a platform called Kickback mm -hmm. that you can use right now. Um, it's for events, so you create an event and you uh, sell, say, 100 tickets. And you sell them for 0.5 Ether. And if you sell all those 100 tickets, then if only 60 persons uh, show up, then they get the money from the other 40 uh, between them. So that's a good way uh, to make people really go, um, if they sign up, they're gonna go because they're vested in it, right? Mm -hmm. And they only use ETH, they don't use DAI. And I've been meaning to get them to use DAI for a while. So last night I'm having dinner and uh, Makoto, who's the founder of Kickback, shows uh, up and I can tell him in person, please put DAI in the system. And today uh, I'm on stage talking about uh, Maker and DAI and I shame him publicly with one of my slides, <laughs> uh, telling him that, hey, you should incorporate DAI into your product because it's great. But mm -hmm. the other day I spent what was maybe $50 worth of ETH that maybe next year is 500. I don't want to spend ETH, I want to spend DAI. And so that's like the interactions with people and uh, the way projects can come together. That's what I value the most about uh, these events. Going back to what, what DAI is good for, and I, I wanna see if you can give me a 101 tutorial of how to manage to say my business. I was dumb. I was getting paid in Ethereum yeah. for my podcast mm -hmm. at $900 in Ethereum. And I think when it was $900 in Ethereum, three weeks later, a month later, it was 400. I lost half of my revenues and I still had to run the business and pay. Yeah. How would you manage funds with DAI if you were doing a business like me? Uh, first off, 
I would have people pay in DAI or, or if they have to pay in another currency, I would convert it to DAI on the spot. So, um, and how does one usually go around and do that? Is it a shape shift? You can use, we have partnerships with uh, several projects. Uh, you can use Uniswap, you can use Kyber. Um, there's an on off ramp uh, via wire uh, that you can. Uh, Wire's here right now, isn't there? Yeah, I think they are. I think so. Um, yes, you can you, use decentralized listen, exchanges. Listen, you just heard a third guy. There's somebody just hanging out here by here in the room, just <laughs> joining in the interview. But, <laughs> uh, but the thing is, yeah, uh, I would convert any crypto I get to die on the spot so I would know how to budget my business. It's like, if I get one Ether right now and it's 120, I would convert it to 120 die, and then I know I have $120. Because, mm -hmm. and, and I know I can pay, I don't know, a month of hosting with that 120. Uh, because otherwise, I get that one ETH, and tomorrow it could double, and that would be amazing, but it could also- Half. Half. Yeah. And, so that's what I would say. And other projects that do have like a war chest of Ether, we've seen that a lot of them are actually borrowing DAI against it with the hopes that their ETH that was once very valuable can become valuable, a lot more valuable again. And then their debt mm -hmm. uh, is gonna be a lot cheaper to repay. Right, so again, like how would you manage somebody's business or expectations with the DAI if they don't wanna cash it out of Ethereum because they don't want to miss that doubling. Oh, I hate giving uh, financial advice. It's not financial advice, man. This is just <laughs> this is business advice, man. It's not financial advice. This is oh. how, how do we run a business? If you have a hundred dollars right there and you have to pay right. your hosting, do you take the risk of seeing it double or having? And how how can I help you with that? With that with managing those two choices? I think that would uh, depend on the person and their expectation of risk. But what I would do and what I do most of the time is um, I borrow against my ETH conservatively, like very, very conservative-like, and I pay uh, my bills uh, often always with DAI, and uh, I pay back my loans with my, uh, uh, with my salary, which is also paid in DAI. And I would tell people that if they are up to that task, if they do have a war chest of ETH, doesn't have to be a lot, but the system requires that you have at least a dollar fifty worth of ETH for every dollar that you borrow. Mm -hmm. But that's like being extreme. If ETH goes down a couple of cents, then you can get liquidated. So, mm -hmm. for me to be safe, you would need to have at least three dollars worth uh, of ether in the system for every dollar, every die that you borrow. Right on. And that's a good way. Uh, Aragon is doing that. They opened the CDP. They took out a million die in debt and they've been paying uh, salaries with that. Right on, right on. Comments on JP Morgan's stablecoin. Do you feel threatened or is this a good thing? I think it is a good thing because uh, they're validating what we do and they've done a complete 180 on uh, their position. And it's something that we knew that was gonna happen and everybody knew it and I think even they knew it. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> they for sure knew it. Yeah. Right on, right on. Follow up to that. As a stablecoin, you don't feel threatened with big banks trying to get in here to lock that market? No, I don't because what MakerDAO offers is decentralization and transparency. Mm -hmm. Right now, we have our version of DAI called, it is single collateral DAI. So everything we talked about, you can only borrow against Ether. Mm -hmm. Our next version, a multi-collateral DAI, you're gonna be able to borrow against a whole bunch of different assets. And that's gonna be the, the, the big 1.0, uh, so to speak. And I think when people realize how Maker works and how you can actually see that every die out there is backed by uh, more, uh, it is worth more the assets than the actual die out there. So you know that the system works and it has worked from when we launched that ETH was, was uh, around 800 and went to 1400 and then to 85 and we didn't lose our peg. So mm -hmm. uh, I don't think we should uh, feel threatened. Of course, there's gonna be projects uh, or people that use it. Uh, we've seen speculators, they flock probably more to USDT or maybe another stablecoin, but the actual builders of projects, people who are working on open source, who are bettering the ecosystem of Ethereum and others, they're using DAI. Mm -hmm. 
the US dollar on the blockchain, yep. if, if JP Morgan's going $1 to one JP Morgan coin, why do we need random companies in the space? And I'm not saying random, but new companies. JP Morgan is old, they're established, the dollar is known, it's there, yeah. nobody can deny it. Why do we need MakerDAO? Why do we need USDT? Why do we need these other companies? And why do we need the, the headache of blockchain and, and, and scams and hacks and losing private keys and all that shit? Well, Lehman Brothers was old and uh, it went bust. And <laughs> I, will give, uh, I will give you my answer from... You should have just dropped the bike and walk out the door. <laughs> now, I, I will give you my answer as a, an Argentinian and as a Latin American. We do not trust banks. We've had banks take our savings and convert our dollars into pesos so they're worth like 20% of what they used to be worth. We've seen all that happen and there's just a portion of the world that does not trust centralization and, and, and will never do. And we've found with this blockchain technologies, we found something that we actually believe in because it is decentralized, it is transparent, it is unstoppable. And for those kind of people like me, we're never gonna go with a bank. I, I don't wanna say never, but they just do not give me the, the satisfaction that I need to say that, yeah, I'm gonna use them. I cannot speak for somebody in the US maybe that your economy is a lot more stable and you do not have 45% inflation a year. So I don't know what I would say if I were in No, I mean, that's a very that's a good, very good point, and I, and I appreciate that. And now I have two questions came from that, and I know that we're going way over time, but now I'm very curious on your opinion. Do you think that these either developing countries, South America, Africa, the Stans, or, or even places like you know Southeast Asia, will be leading the charge in cryptocurrency and in blockchain adoption just because of the stability that it has? And do you think that the Western world, uh, do you think that the developed nations, uh, the EU, the United States, are just naive? I think that developing nations are already leading the charge. If you look at what's going on in Venezuela and you look at the volume that, for example, local Bitcoins is doing, it is incredible. It, it's totally boomed. It's amazing what people are doing. And, and they're using other blockchains as well. They're using Dash. They're using whatever means they can to try to keep whatever value they have and trying to get money from family that's elsewhere trying to get the money into their country and we want to do that with DAI and uh, we have a big push in Latin America starting uh, probably in Argentina but hopefully going to other countries that actually need this kind of stuff mm -hmm. so I don't think they're gonna be the the flagship they already are they are using this right now and it's not that the US is naive or developed countries are naive it's just that you do not have this kind of problems like here, we're using uh, Buffy Dye to buy stuff out in the food trucks. That is a problem as well. It may not be a big problem like uh, what's going on, but it is a problem that we found a solution for. Pay for your food in five seconds. Mm -hmm. Before we go, I want to say thank you very much for coming on the show. I want to say thank you very much to reaching out to me. There's a lot of people here right now. And to find me in a crowd, to send me a text and to do all that labor, thank you for doing all that labor to find me and coming up here to have a, a couple minutes to chat with Crypto 101 and have the listeners know a 101 on MakerDAO. We really appreciate that. Oh, for sure. And if I can say one last thing. You can absolutely, or uh, two. We just, uh uh, we just launched uh, diestats.com. It's like a vanity dashboard showing the actual numbers that we manage. Mm -hmm. uh, almost 2% of all ETH in existence is locked up in our smart contracts right now. And it's like actually 1.956, but it's growing every day. And that'll give you like an idea of how big this project is getting. Right. It's, uh, it's, we hope everybody actually uses it ask the medium of exchange for Ethereum. My last question to you, let me know how people can learn more about you, learn more about the project. So of course, MakerDAO.com, that's the main website. And we're always on our chat at chat.makerdao.com. Uh, you will always find somebody available there and you can learn about the project and uh, the people in it and what we do and where we're going. Mariano. Thank you very much for coming on the show and thank you very much for allowing me to pick your brain and telling us a 101 on MakerDAO. Oh, thank you very much. And now a word from our sponsor. Energy, cryptocurrency, 
for World Adoption, spelled E-N-E-R-G-I. When Energy launched their cryptocurrency a year ago, they decided not to do an ICO fundraise or pre-mine. Instead, Energy took a leap forward from the self-funded systems found in projects like Dash and SmartCash and designed a robust treasury governed by community masternodes. This provides Energy with a similar monthly budget as Dash, despite Energy being 40 times smaller in market cap. The net effect is that Energy can constantly expand, support and pay their developers, their marketers, and even their own defense team that protects their user base from scammers. Energy recently transitioned from proof of work to proof of stake, and it's already considered one of the top coins for staking. So if you're a masternode or staking enthusiast, or just crypto curious, you should check out their website at www.energi.world, where you can discover the latest evolution in crypto economic modeling, a treasury designed to one day employ a million people. That's www.energienergi.world. Mr. Aaron Paul, long time no talk. How are you? Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Doing, sir? What's going on, Brown Bear? Are you serious? <laughs> What's wrong with Brown Bear, bro? So where you been, man? Oh, just hanging out. Hanging out, doing... Brother, I have been working on a new direction for ICO 101. Oh yeah? Well, what was wrong with the old direction? Well, you can only interview so many brand new ICOs coming into this space until you discover that there's a pattern. And what's that pattern, sir? Well, the pattern, in my humble opinion, is that ICOs and STOs and new blockchain companies and the founders and the people in there are very well intended. I think that they are lacking the tools necessary to succeed in the industry. And what we're doing for ICO 101 is positioning ourselves to be the first place that any new crypto entrepreneur or startup, ICO or STO will come in order to get better equipped to do business in this market. Dude, that's awesome. So what are the shows gonna be like now? Well, we already have in the books, we got a branding episode. So who's your target market? How do you find your target market in a very crowded space? We got an episode coming out with dealing with failure, the steps to dealing with failure. We just put in the bank a communications episode. How do you communicate to your community? How do you speak to your audience in such a manner that they understand it? Uh, we have more coming. Discipline 101. Why does it take discipline to make a business successful? Copywriting. Leadership 101. We got all sorts of great things coming. I'm super excited. Right on, man. Well, I'm excited to start listening to that. Where could people find ICO 101? Well, they need to check out ICO 101 podcast on Twitter. That's at ICO101podcast on Twitter. Also myself, at SUP Aaron Paul on Twitter. And if you think you can bring value to ICOs, then hit me up on Twitter. We'd love to have you on the show. I'd love to see what kind of value you could bring. Aaron Paul, it was great hearing from you again. And I can't wait to hear the new direction of ICO101, sir. Paul Gamble, CEO and co-founder of Nori. Welcome to Crypto 101, sir. Thanks for having me. You are going to tell me about climate change and blockchain integration. You guys are doing some interesting work. I don't know much about it. Actually, I don't know anything about it. And that's why you're here to give us a 101 in your company. Yeah. But before we go into that, tell us a little about yourself, sir. My background is I was a software product manager for Deloitte Consulting for a number of years. Mm -hmm. We built mobile apps for companies like Nike and Target and Alaska Airlines, that sort of thing. And I started mining Bitcoin in 2010. I found, it, found out about it from a professor in grad school. 
and uh, I got really interested in it right away. So I've just been kind of in the blockchain space working in software for a number of years and about four years ago, uh, so this is 2015, I had read an article about how climate scientists were becoming very depressed because no one was listening to them. Mm. And uh, that was what got me into <laughs> wanting to work on climate change and, and not just work on it, but figure out how to solve it. Like, let's make this problem go away, not just be less bad. So when did you get into blockchain? Uh, that was 2010. 2010, did you buy Bitcoin? Yeah, I bought it and I was mining. Whoa, he's still huddling? Uh, I have used a lot of that for the company. Oh wow, okay, good. Yeah. That's fucking dope. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's a virtuous circle. Right on, right on. Actually, I wanna go into that a little bit. When you were mining and hodling your 2010 Bitcoin up until, when did you start the company? 2017. 2017. When you decided to use those funds, was it hard to part with it first? Second of all, you must have really believed in what you had envisioned. Yes, uh, uh, yes to both. It was okay. it was very hard to part with. Um, uh, a lot of it came actually. I started investing in Ethereum right after the DAO hack. Okay, um, I was really impressed with the way that the foundation handled that and the way that the blockchain rallied around it, and then got involved in tokens and ICOs in 2017. So I've long believed in the power and ability of blockchains to improve and solve social problems, mm -hmm. and this is to me one of the most important social problems. So. I believe so strongly in this. I've been dedicating my life to this for four years and your money. now. And my money at this point. Um, but I see those as one and the same. Um, so in the end, it wasn't that hard of a decision. It's just, I'll tell you, it is very hard when like pressing that sell button. Really? <laughs> a lot of hodlers, early hodlers, bought Bitcoin and are now using it to put back into the blockchain space, to the crypto space, either by building, by advocating, by being uh, angel investors and what have you. Why don't people just cash out, become millionaires, go buy a Lambo and, and start rolling around? What is it about the early adopters that make them continue to work in the space? Since you're one of those. Well, it's the thing that attracted you in the first place. Mm -hmm. When I found out about Bitcoin from a professor in grad school, like I said, who is teaching us about how trading markets worked. And mm -hmm. so we, we were looking at a Bitcoin market as an example. And I got really excited, read the white paper, and instantly started thinking about the ways in which this could be used to decentralize trust and really help solve some large-scale coordination problems. I still very much believe in that and, and want to see that happen. That's the world that I want to live in. And these problems aren't going to go away on their own. Somebody has to work on them. So why not us? You're a Trekkie, aren't you? Uh, yeah, probably more so, more so than like a Star Wars guy, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, Next I, generation, it's my, yeah. I, I'm feeling it here. Yeah. I'm, I'm feeling the Trekkie vibe. I'm feeling uh -huh. STNG right here, bro. I actually, while I was in grad school, wrote a paper on the leadership lessons from Jean-Luc Picard. I wrote my uh, undergrad thesis on Kantian philosophy, juxtaposed it with Star Trek. <laughs> I love that. And I, I got that from a professor I had who was teaching political philosophy in Star Trek. So we would watch an episode oh, and then, cool. and then comp compare it to certain philosophers yeah. and their ideologies. Anyway, let's go off of that <laughs> and into Nori. Nori, climate change, what is it, sir? So when people think about climate change, they often listen to what the policymakers at the UN are talking about. And so your listeners might have heard about the IPCC report from last fall, which talked about the one and a half degrees or two degrees temperature increase target. Mm -hmm. I think that that's sort of silly. When, when they talk about temperature targets, they're, what they're doing is they're saying the average global temperature, they want to keep that from increasing by two degrees from the baseline before the Industrial Revolution. Mm -hmm. But finding an average global temperature is sort of like finding an average global phone number. Like, what does that mean? I think a much more useful metric is to look at the amount of the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. So today that's at about 410 parts per million. And before the industrial revolution began, it was between 280 and 300 parts per million. Okay. So our goal, our collective goal as a planet should be, let's get that number back down to 300. 
from a non-scientific person that just looked at those two numbers, it doesn't seem like that big of a, a climb. You're right. And actually, when I was in college, I was um, politically conservative and uh, I ran the College Republicans my sophomore year. And I actually organized an event that was called Think You're Causing Global Warming? Think Again. And it had a nice little cartoon of a polar bear sipping a Mai Tai on a tropical beach. And I, it was for the same reason. I didn't think that changing carbon dioxide levels that much really made that much of a difference, but I was way wrong about that. This is, um, it's, it's very simple and straightforward to measure carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. There's an observatory at Mauna Loa um, in Hawaii that records this every season. And we can use ice cores to look at what it's been in the past. And, and we can quite clearly see the effects of what increasing carbon dioxide levels has done in the past to changing temperatures um, on Earth. Mm -hmm. You said two very interesting things there. The first one was, what is the global average temperature? Uh -huh. It's like trying to find the global average phone number. Uh -huh. Would you say that people who, say, who think that the average temperature news reporting and they're skeptics of global warming or, or climate change because of that might be validated by just what you just said? Um, maybe, maybe not. When it comes to the skeptics of climate change. One, I think that Nori's approach to how we're going about it should be amenable to them um, because we're not saying anyone should be required to do anything. And what is that approach? Oh, okay, so let's dig into that. We are focused on carbon removal. So if we want to get that 410 parts per million number back down to 300, we need to remove greenhouse gases that are already up in the atmosphere. Because even if we turned off all of our emissions everywhere around the world tomorrow, there's still way too much CO2 up there and other greenhouse gases, but CO2 is the most important one. So there, it turns out that there are many different ways to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Some of them are cost effective and some of them are not. Uh, some of them are ecological in uh, scope and some of them are more industrial. But what they all need is more financial investment in order to scale up. Mm. So what we are building is a marketplace that makes it as simple as possible for people or companies or governments to pay for removing CO2 from the atmosphere mm -hmm. in a measured and verified incredible way. What does that mean for, say, a steel factory in Cleveland, Ohio? So we sort of think of carbon dioxide like a garbage problem. Mm -hmm. Like for decades, over 100 years, we've just been throwing our garbage out on the streets and we haven't been collecting it or picking it up at all. And most efforts that people take for climate change today are about saying, let's throw out less garbage. Mm -hmm. But we need to go out and remove the garbage that's already there. Right. So we think of it like, for every ton of CO2 that anyone emits, they should just pay for removing a ton of CO2. Mm, okay. And that helps solve some of the political problem because there isn't anything immoral or wrong about emitting carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. People should be free to manufacture products and fly around the world mm -hmm. and, and do whatever uh, might cause emissions but they should pay for cleaning it up in the same way that we pay for collecting our garbage. You know, I 100% agree with that. I personally have a big beef with recycling, to be honest with you. Oh, I'm with you. And the reason why I have a big beef with recycling, and I don't, well, you might not be with me, but you might be with <laughs> okay, me, right, but let's see here, <laughs> is that they keep passing or pushing the buck to the consumer. It's the added taxes on, on your Coke bottle, and then the added taxes on your neighborhood fees or your city city fees or mm -hmm. city taxes to get a recycling truck to come out and pick up the recycling because you have to separate it, and then you have to you know pay for the recycling, and then you don't you don't see any returns from that. Why aren't we charging the Coca Cola to pick up the shit ton of? plastic bottles in the oceans or the can rings or whatever? I think because it's too difficult to mm -hmm. to know how much to charge them and to it's also too difficult to enable that transaction. And that's really like the exact problem that we're trying to solve. But like you're saying, you're making it their responsibility. If you put out a ton of CO2, you should clean up a ton of CO2. If you manufacture 1,000 plastic Coke bottles, mm -hmm. you should take 1,000 pl plastic Coke bottles back. So that's the future that I want to live in, but it's going to take a multi-phase approach to get to that point. We're taking a voluntary approach to this. So when, um, when we think about who's going to be buying these carbon removal certificates, 
it's going to be uh, mostly corporations today, and there are two different types of corporations that we are in talks with about buying these. The most obvious one would be companies that are already offsetting their emissions for corporate social responsibility reasons. Mm -hmm. These are companies that are in all sorts of different industries and they're claiming they're carbon neutral because they're buying offsets. They're doing so because they want to be recognized as leaders in their industry for that. There's a growing body of evidence over the last five to 10 years or so that there's been a cultural shift. Consumers care about buying from brands that leave a positive social impact in the world. And companies are starting to recognize that. Big investment groups like BlackRock are, the CEO of BlackRock has said very explicitly and publicly that they want companies that they hold shares in to be moving in this direction. Mm -hmm. So the, all the signs are pointing towards people moving in that way voluntarily. But that's not quite a big enough scale yet, but it'll get there and we need to create the infrastructure so that when they are ready, they can buy these easily. The other types of corporations that we're talking with are large food producers. And it would probably help to explain why the food producers are interested and how that relates to how carbon is actually getting removed. There are all sorts of different methods, like I mentioned. Um, we're focused initially on the ecological method of storing carbon in agricultural soils. Mm -hmm. So this is farmers changing their farming practices to reduce the amount of tillage that they do, the amount of plowing the land. They plant cover crops and they do more crop rotations among their different fields. And what that's going to do is actually encourage the growth of organic matter in their soil, like bacteria and fungi and worms and that sort of thing. And there's a very symbiotic relationship between that organic matter and the root systems of the plants. By doing those practices, not only are the farmers sequestering carbon in their soil and pulling it out of the air through photosynthesis through the plant, the plants are acting like funnels to go into the soil, mm -hmm. but it's also restoring the health and quality of their soils, which will over time increase their yields. Mm -hmm. So for the farmers, this is a good deal because over time they're going to be producing more food, ideally at a decreased cost, so that this is a more profitable venture for them. But for the food producers, these are companies like General Mills and Cargill and Danone, McDonald's, Ben & Jerry's. All of these companies have been interested in figuring out how to get the farmers in their supply chains to switch over to these practices. Right. Because for them, it's like an investment in their supply chain. Mm -hmm. They want to make sure that they're getting access to high quality commodity crops in the future. They've all been putting millions of dollars and waiting many years to develop a method for measuring and verifying this. And we're showing up and saying, hey, we can do this right now for you and we can make this very simple. So do you want to come participate? We can make this very simple. Participate. We have it right now. A lot of blockchain companies, a lot of people are saying that in the space right now. Walk us through the operations of a company going into your platform using tokenomics, getting, well, everything we just talked about. Just yeah. walk, walk us through the, the, the steps, the yeah. procedure. So I should clarify, we're not live yet, but we uh, intend to go live later this year. When a farmer removes a ton of CO2, uh, it has to be measured and verified because you can't see or smell uh, CO2 and we have to be able to figure out the numbers somehow. So we're working with a group at Colorado State University called Comet Farm, and they do modeling where they take in all sorts of different data about the, the cropping practices that the farmers are using, that's like what they're planting, where their fields are located, what kind of fertilizer they're using, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Combine that with imagery data and weather data and all sorts of other models. And Comet Farm is really the world's leader uh, in this. And they, they also take soil samples from different regions around the country. The farmer submits that data to us and then to Comet Farm, and then it has to be verified by an independent third-party verifier. So they, they sign a stamp of approval that, yes, the data that the farmer provided is true and accurate. Mm -hmm. And then Comet Farm can return a number that says, this is how much carbon is in your soil, and by doing these practices, this is how much more you're going to put in your soil. Mm -hmm. So we can reward them for that by issuing carbon removal certificates to the farmers for that. When the farmers have these CRCs. One second, before that, you will reward them for issuing the certificate, not because of the volume that they're issuing the certificate for. We issue the certificate. Nori issues the certificate and to what the farmer. Okay, and what about this third-party company? I'm just wondering. The can, verifiers? The verifiers. How can, there's no way for them to 
game the system by saying there's more CO2 than uh, so the verifiers aren't actually the ones who are saying how much CO2 they're who removing. Is? Comet Farm is. The Comet Farm is going to the third party. The Comet Farm has no incentive to deliver any okay. number that's up or down because they're not being rewarded by that. Yeah. Comet Farm is like, that's a, that's like a service provider for Nori. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's our relationship. The verifiers would have liability insurance and they would be the ones who would be responsible for if there was some sort of fraud. But we have mechanisms built into our design to deal with fraud. Mm-hmm. Talk about that later. So the farmer has this CRC now that's been measured and verified, and they can choose to sell that in our market. And they can sell that in when they sell that, they receive a Nori token. So a Nori token is a medium of exchange. Think of it like there's a finite number of Nori tokens to be created, 500 million, and a potentially infinite number of CRCs. So the farmer sells the CRC and receives the Nori token, and then they can choose to hold on to it, or they can sell it, and they can do whatever they want with it because it's a token. The buyers, so these companies that I just talked about, they buy the CRC, and then it becomes immediately retired. That's carbon market uh, language. That just means that they can't transfer it anymore. Mm -hmm. And these CRCs are non-fungible tokens uh, in practice. So they're just buying an NFT and then they own it forever Mm -hmm. and it can't be resold. Mm -hmm. And then as these Nori tokens circulate around the economy, that establishes a price. And Mm -hmm. our hope is that the Nori token uh, and the price of the Nori token eventually becomes seen as a global reference price for carbon, sort Mm -hmm. of like Brent crude oil or West Texas Intermediate. Like People want to know what is the price of oil when they look at those references. Changing gears a little bit because I think we covered Nori quite well. Mm-hmm. From a skeptic's point of view, if someone was listening to this and saw your journey mm-hmm. of being a conservative, preaching about uh, global warming is a hoax, climate change is a hoax, finding an opportunity in blockchain to make a marketplace that could be very profitable, cleaning up CO2, and now also saying that global warming climate change is a problem. What would you say to somebody say that this is just an opportunistic capitalist that's just finding a, a money-making opportunity and going with it? And as we know, blockchain companies and startups in the blockchain space have very big, vast goals, but we haven't seen much come out of them. What would, what would you say to that? I would say you're exactly right. That's exactly what we're doing. One of the problems with climate change is, have you ever heard of this psychological concept called solution aversion? No. Solution aversion is when you go to someone, you tell them, hey, there's this problem happening, and here's how I think we can solve it. Mm -hmm. And if they don't like the consequences of that solution, they start pushing back on you and they say, no, Mm -hmm. actually, I don't even think that's a problem. And that's what happens with climate change because when the, uh, the conversation for uh, various reasons over the years has always been dominated by activists on the political left side of the spectrum. And this is unique to the United States. Like nowhere else in the world does this sort of debate happen. Right, right. But inside the US, so it's uh, like the Naomi Kleins of the world who are out there saying like, yeah, climate change is our opportunity to enact socialism at a large scale. So of course conservatives are gonna push back on that and say, no, I I don't believe in this. So our approach is to say, I don't really care. Like I said earlier, like carbon is not immoral. Um, it car- we're made of carbon. Everything organic is made of carbon. It's, a, it's an important element. But if it's possible for people to make money while removing this carbon garbage and then finding a way to reuse it and create new value from that, then who cares if you believe in climate change or not? If you can make money from it, just go make money from it. Mm-hmm. And so we think that our approach can actually distill this political conversation and make it much more about just the engineering problem that it should be. Like that, that's all that this should be. It's just an engineering problem. Mm-hmm. Switching gears off of climate change for our last question. East Denver has, and, and listeners, I think that you've probably heard an evolution of my pronunciation from eth to eth over this because... <sighs> Man, when uh, Joe Lubin's keynote last night and he said F Denver, I just grimaced in horror. Oh, he said F Denver? Yeah. Well, then F Denver it is. That's the correct form. Well, but I've heard Vitalik say ETH, so I don't know what we're supposed to do, but I, I like ETH. You know, I always say F, I got crap for it, and everybody <laughs> is saying ETH at this place, and I'm getting brainwashed. Well, you don't say Ethereum. You know what? And that's the argument I hate. <laughs> you don't say Ethereum. It's... it's it, no, it's Ethereum. 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 It, 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 it's more of like Ethereum. Ether. I mean, that's what... Well, yeah, Ether, yeah. Yeah. 
But and, well, the debate's not settled. <laughs> the debate is definitely not settled. But I'm 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 going back and sticking to my guns. F. Here in F. Denver, you see a lot of people coming from all over the world. You are based in Seattle, is that correct? Yeah. You and your team flew out to Denver to hang out with a bunch of nerds to hack some stuff, build some stuff, listen to some people. What are you getting out of this? Because it's not a small cost. What are you getting out of coming over to Denver? Well, the one thing that I've found interesting, especially since I come with like such a kind of long background in the blockchain space, mm-hmm. Nori has been going for about two years now, and we've had a lot of uptake in the environmental space, in the agricultural space, in the carbon market space and all that but we haven't had much uptake in the blockchain space. I think there might be a few different reasons for that. Uh, it might just be too abstract. It's, it's too far away from like the idea of decentralized finance, for mm-hmm. instance. It's more of a practical, real-world real use case. So that, I mean, that was our big reason for coming here, was just like, let's, we wanted to interact more with the blockchain community. We've done a lot. We've published an open source framework. It's called an atomic swap marketplace, where uh, you can atomically swap a non-fungible token for an ERC-20 token, and the smart contract never takes ownership of either one. So you can totally trust that transaction. And we did that because we want other companies to build business models around this idea of you perform some sort of action that's positive or good, and then you exchange that for a token. Mm -hmm. And we want to see others doing that to solve other problems. And that's kind of one of our big hopes for the blockchain community to see that and take that up and go build something cool with it. So to sum up that long answer to that question is you came from Seattle to Denver to try to sell them on the idea that you had. Um, well, I mean, I was on a panel earlier today, so I was invited to be a speaker um, okay. and, and talk about blockchain solutions for climate change. But I just want us to get more integrated into the blockchain community, and I want the blockchain community to take up what we're working on and go build off of it as well. Because mm-hmm. there are many more environmental and social problems that need solving, that need better incentive structures, and I, we don't have the time to work on all of those. Somebody else needs to. <laughs> right on, Paul. Paul, thank you for coming on Crypto 101, and good luck with Nori, and I hope I see you in a Lambo with some more Bitcoin that you get back from having a successful company, sir. That's the goal. Thanks for having me. Hi, brother. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Crypto 101. I hope that you are enjoying these 101 episodes from F Denver as much as I enjoyed making them. And we have one more F Denver 101 episode coming up in a couple days. But before we get into that episode, we're going to have on Mr. Ari Tro, who is the CEO and co-founder of XYO. And he's going to tell us about location, location, location. That's location data on the blockchain and why it's important. I am so looking forward to sharing that episode with you. Speaking of sharing, please share this episode with everyone you know, your friends, your family, via your social media, your Twitter, your Facebook, your Instagram, or any other way you would like people to hear this episode and others and help Crypto 101 on its mission to get people involved with blockchain and cryptocurrency. Don't forget to make sure you're subscribed to ICO 101 Podcast. You can find that on iTunes or anywhere else you listen to your podcast. Mr. Aaron Paul, one of my favorite podcasters, is going to be coming out with his new series, as you heard from Aaron and myself talking in the middle of this episode, about ICO 101's new direction. And I want to say thank you again to our sponsor, Energy. We'll see you in future episodes of Crypto 101. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.